Hello, I'm Dave Mathis. Hello, I'm Kimberly Tiso. Hi, I'm Kara Ayers. Hi, I'm Jason Jones, and you're listening to ADA Live. Yo. Hi, let's roll. Let's go. Hello, everyone. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Black Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, welcome to ADA Live. I'm Janice Baldwin-Gutter, the Program Outreach Coordinator for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the Southeast ADA Center. Listening audience, if you have questions about the American with Disabilities Act, you can use the online form anytime at adalive.org or call the Southeast ADA Center at 404-541-9001. All calls are free and confidential. Now, according to the National Council on Disability report that is already distributed, rocking the cradle, ensuring the rights of parents with disabilities and their children, 6.1 million children in the United States have parents with disabilities, which is nearly 10% or one in 10 children. Despite the increasing number of people with disabilities becoming parents, the report also found that most still struggle with family, community, and social concerns about the choice to become a parent. In today's episode, we will be talking about the unique role of parenting with a disability, as well as a new book written by our guests, A Celebration of Family, Stories of Parents with Disabilities. And we welcome our guest today, Dave Mathis, the Kentucky Coalition for the Rights of Parents with Disabilities, Jason Jones, Disability Specialist, Human Development Institute, University of Kentucky, Kimberly Tussaud, President and Chief Executive Officer, ABLE South Carolina, and Kyra Ayers, PhD Associate Professor, Associate Director, University of Cincinnati, Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities, Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, Division of Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics. Please welcome everyone to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Janice. Great. A Celebration of Family, Stories of Parents with Disabilities tells the stories of 30 families where one or both parents have physical, mental, sensory, and or intellectual disabilities. The stories illustrate the infinite variety of the American family. Why was it important to share these kinds of stories? Dave, can you speak to this? I've been working part-time for a Center for Independent Living in Louisville for the last few years. And uh, by law, half the employees of a center, independent living center have to have a disability. So I was talking to a couple of the employees who had disabilities and were also parents. And uh, they were talking about some of the challenges and experiences they had. And we decided after doing a, a few panels at events led by Jason Jones, we decided to, maybe we had enough material for a book. 
And I think when we sat down to starting to put the book together, we had really three reasons why we were doing it. Um, first, we wanted to demonstrate how parenting is possible for everyone, even if you have disability. And we have a variety of disabilities in the book. Second, we wanted to show how societal bias and discrimination still existed toward people with disabilities becoming parents, uh, which uh, Jason Jones expertly outlines in the introduction to the book. And finally, I think a lot of the parents wanted to have like a guidebook for young people with disabilities wanting to be parents, a guidebook to demonstrate how it was possible and uh, what they might consider when uh, wanting to do that. So that's why we put together the book basically. How did you approach these families to tell their stories? What was the reaction to being asked to share their experiences, Dave? As it turns out, I knew a lot of parents with disabilities. <laughs> so most of the people in the book I know professionally and uh, personally. And most, just about anybody I uh, approached was pretty receptive to being involved. There are 30 stories in the book. Uh, uh, two of them are reprints from other sources, but 21 of the 30 I knew personally. And then I found the other folks like Kara uh, through contacts. I, I did not know Kara personally before we put the book together. Um, so what I found incredible, really, one of the couple impressions that the doing the book made on me was that how open everybody was to talking about their parenting experience extremely open, sometimes painfully open in a couple of cases. And uh, of course, it dawns on you that everybody wants to talk about their kids. And this was, uh, so there wasn't a problem getting people to talk about it, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, everybody was pretty open to it. I didn't have much trouble uh, uh, soliciting the people. The one area uh, uh, we had an issue with was people with intellectual disabilities or autism. I couldn't get anybody in Kentucky. I could not find people with that disability who were parents who wanted to talk about it for uh, some obvious reasons. They didn't want any attention brought to them. So it was, uh, I have to thank TASP, the Association for Successful Parenting, for finding uh, two people that kind of fit that description for participants. One was in Cincinnati. Uh, Lindsay and one is in Washington State, Ivanova, to thank Kara for linking me to TASP and those individuals. Great. Thank you for uh, letting us know that. And if anyone else has anything they'd like to add, please do so. Jason, you wrote the book's introduction. It provides a brief history of parenting with a disability in the U.S. Historically, what was society's view of people with disabilities becoming parents, and how has that view changed? Well, I think you could probably make the argument that the view in a lot of situations hasn't changed. Um, maybe more, um, we're not as brutal with the way that we go about doing that, but the, the attitudes are, are still still changing. Um, uh, you know, early on, we 
it was the movement for um, to just get rid of um, any chance for people um, to have children um, if they had a disability through the eugenics movement. Um, the idea that uh, we would sterilize or we would force people to abort uh, those kinds of things. I mean, some of those practices still continued up until the seventies, um, where there were several states where you know um, they could just say you know they could force you to to be sterilized so you would not be able to reproduce. Uh, and unfortunately that fall, fell more on women than men. And uh, it's, it's uh, we, we still see stories all the time of people who lose their children uh, because of um, just kind of societal's misconception of what parenting is and that you're, you have an inability to parent because you have a disability, that you don't have supports in, in place. Um, sometimes these um, knee-jerk reactions are made um, at the hospitals right after a baby is born, uh, where a nurse makes a decision that someone is blind or someone is deaf or someone has a physical disability and they feel like they're not going to be able to take care of their kids. Um, someone who's not connected to them at all. Um, so we've seen over the course of the last about 100 years now go from forced sterilization to now we're starting to talk about what we can do to eliminate some of these barriers and some of these um, misconceptions. And honestly, to legislate, you know, at some point, we still have several states who have are, are still um, can still take your children just based on um, the idea that you have a disability. Um, it's just a perception. It's not necessarily the truth. And uh, I'm glad Kimberly's on today because South Carolina's done some wonderful work. Um, Kara's on and they've done some great work in Ohio. And we're trying to follow in their line to get some of this legislation passed here in Kentucky to just bring us up to. 2023 now, but it's scary to think, you know, I'm 48 years old and in 1974, you can still be forced to have, to be sterilized or to have an abortion just because you had a disability. I was just going to say, I really like the way Jason said too, that um, attitudes haven't changed as much as maybe that they've become more covert because we still see these things happening. It's just, we're um, as a society, a little more um, secretive about what the goals are. Um, so uh, girls, women with disabilities are still sterilized. Sometimes the excuse given now is that um, it's to help manage their periods or their menstruation. There was a very high profile case with Britney Spears. And I think many people looked at that case as, you know, she was under guardianship or in California, it's called conservatorship. But as part of that, she was also not allowed to have a form of birth control removed so that she could uh, have more children. So that case too was an example of um, how society's attitudes have continued to pretty forcefully um, declare that people with disabilities can't be parents. Thank you very much for those comments. Anyone else, any any other comments, you're more than welcome to uh, join in on the conversation for the questions. Any other comments on that particular idea? And I, and I will just say, you know, that this has been an attitude that's not only just in the back of people's minds, but Early on, you know, the, the idea, um, one of the Buck versus Bell, one of the famous cases where um, she was forced uh, to be sterilized after, after having a child. So she couldn't, you know, um, reproduce anymore. You know, one of our most famous um, Supreme Court justices said, you know, basically one generation of imbeciles is enough, in his opinion, when they wrote to uphold that particular ruling. It, it, it's sad to know that that ever happened in our country. Um, you know, we, we see things, and I, I point this out in the introduction, that uh, we heard these things going on in Germany um, under the Hitler regime, and we were so appalled by it 
But the idea of eugenics started here, unfortunately. Thank you very much. For the next question, what are some of the unique obstacles that a person with a disability may face? Kimberly, Kara? This is Kimberly. I think the biggest obstacle that parents with disabilities face, you know, very in the very beginning is just really um, just perceptions, misconceptions about how we may be taking care of our children and how that looks. And that looks different for any parents, parents with without disabilities or with disabilities. But I think when a parent has a disability, it's left, it's held to a different standard. If we're not doing it one way, sometimes we are are judged, you know, and I think, you know, as uh, your child child enters school, that is a different obstacle too, as you're starting to deal with the, the barriers that, you know, students with disabilities uh, deal with every day in the school system is just uh, schools not being set up for children with disabilities, but let alone parents with disabilities when we're going in there to have meetings and um, needing access to our children. I think overall, it's it's truly the misconception about, you know, what we are, how how we are everywhere. There are parents with disabilities throughout uh, the country, everywhere. And, you know, we're going to be in stores and your schools and everywhere and, and how, you know, people with disabilities just are not considered uh, being a parent in society. Yeah, this is Kara. Yeah, I think, I mean, when I think of what our unique obstacles are, it would be, as Kimberly mentioned, those um, access barriers, but we also share so many obstacles in that, uh, you know, there's a lot of judgment and maybe it's connected to the passion that we all have around parenting, no matter if you have a disability or not. Um, but, you know, there's there's a lot of beliefs about who's right and what's the right way. But when I look at kind of approaches to parenting that have different names, like gentle parenting or unschooling or, you know, and there's opinions and judgments kind of connected to those in different facets. It's interesting that, you know, our approaches are not viewed really in the same way and that we, you know, all of us have the same general goal of um, raising our, our children to, you know, be the the best they can be and, and, you know, under the scope of our values, whatever those may be, for whatever reason, um, ableism, one huge reason, <laughs> we are not kind of given the same, I guess, bandwidth of freedom of, of approach in parenting that you see that um, many non-disabled parents em embrace pretty creatively. There's quite a range of approaches to parenting and parenting with a disability, the small differences that we may have often to me fits right in that spectrum, you know, it's really not all that unusual or unique. Uh, and this is Dave, uh, just to reinforce what has been said and kind of connected to the last question. Some of the obstacles terms of perception start even before the birth. I don't know how, there's several stories in the book about medical professionals telling women that they cannot have children and shouldn't consider it. And the people, the two people I mentioned earlier, Lindsay and Ivanova, also talk about being in the hospital with their child at birth and fearful that they might take their child away right there in the hospital. Any other comments? I love what Kara says because, you know, basically at the end of the day, we always talk about this in these panels, but we're all parents, right? I mean, parenting is about 99% the same for everybody. 
you know, personalities of children and circumstances and geography and school systems and all that kind of stuff are sort of all the, all the things that we have to maneuver as well. Um, and the, the disability aspect is just kind of on top of that. Uh, but for the most part, I look around at parents that are my peers and I don't see a whole lot of difference um, in parenting. It is, uh, you know, I've said it a million times, it's the, uh, it's the best and the worst thing in your life. And I think any parent, regardless of whether or not you have a disability, kind of agrees with that. You know, it's, uh, it's the best thing that ever happened to you. And sometimes it's the worst when your kids are sick or when there's an issue, that kind of stuff. Um, but the worry is the same. And that's what's always sad to me is that if you have to worry about things that are outside of the normal scope of parenting, then I don't know, I, I, would, I don't like to say things like that's not fair, but it also creates a massive strain um, above and beyond the strain of parenting, and which is the most difficult job in the world. So, One of the things that stood out in the book was the resilience of kids to adapt to a parent's disability. Can you talk about that, Tyra? Let's start with you. I am super fascinated by this, not only just personally, but as a researcher, um, the term that we use in research to describe this in an academic sense, at least, is mutual accommodation, which means that both of us, parent and child, are, that's the mutual part, <laughs> are accommodating each other and working together. And I've never been a non-disabled parent. Um, I'm a full-time wheelchair user. I'm also a little person. So sometimes that factors in even more than my wheelchair does in terms of what I can reach or how much I can carry as a parent. But I suspect that non-disabled parents um, adapt with their kids as well. I can only speak for our house though. But to give some examples of how it works in my house, um, my kids, I have three kids, learn pretty early that, that for me to help with things like shoes, they have to climb up on a higher surface so that I can reach their shoes because it's not as easy for me to um, hop out of my wheelchair and get on the floor. They also have picked up on little things that we've really never talked about that they just observe. I know my my youngest now is five. She still likes to hop on my lap sometimes in my wheelchair, but she knows that it's easier for me to push her if we're on our hardwood surfaces. So she'll she'll say, can I get on your lap when we get to the hallway? And to me, that's telling me that she recognizes she wants me to carry her, but she knows that it's easier on the hardwood. So we're both adapting to each other. And you see this in families with all sorts of disabilities. Um, you know, working together as a family is a big goal and value of, of my crew here. But I'd also note that my kids, when I think about resilience, I think about something that the kids are like bouncing back from or, you know, overcoming adversity. And that really comes more in the shape of how they bounce back and respond when we face negative attitudes from others. So my kids very early on have noticed that people stare at us um, in public. Sometimes they've asked very loudly <laughs> about why that's happening in public. But as they've gotten older, they have learned to be resilient in the face of that. We talk about it when it bothers them and we you know, move on with our life. We don't let it stop us from doing what we want to do. But when I think about resilience in terms of like, what do they have to overcome? I definitely think it's, it's more examples like that than it is, you know, figuring out the little quirks of our family and how we can best work together. Because to them, that's just their norm. That's always been how it is for them. And they don't see that as um, anything harder that they have to overcome. 
Thank you, Kara. Anyone else? Uh, Dave, Jason, Kimberly? I think one of the cool ways that my, because um, Kara covered a lot of the ways that, that kids adapt to your disability, but one of the cool ways is in schedule. My kids know that in the mornings, we don't get up and get out fast. I mean, they do to go to school and stuff, but one good example is at Christmas. You know, um, a lot of kids are up at six o'clock in the morning and ready to rip open packages and stuff. And my kids just chill because they know dad is probably not going to be up at six o'clock in the morning because it takes an hour and a half or so to get up. So they just wait on us. You know, they wait on us for a lot of things uh, through routines and that kind of stuff. There's, as they get older, they recognize it even more. And they say, you know, do you have to do this tonight? Or, do you, you know, like they, they start to adapt to the schedule, which is kind of a neat thing that I've seen more as they get older. Um, but when I was younger, you know, it was something I really worried about even before having kids period was, can I provide the type of things that a lot of parents um, stereotypically provide, like teaching them to throw a ball or, or whatever those things are. It really takes care of itself. It really does. And, um, and it's kind of a blessing sometimes to see how they do adapt. Um, and I would agree with, with Kara wholeheartedly. The resilient part is, is the push against society versus it, you know, the ability to make it in our own household because this is a safe environment that they, they, they do well in. Um, when we step outside the doors, when they see the stairs and the, you know, and, and now we're going to be at the age where their, their, their friends ask, you know, what, what's wrong with your dad and that kind of stuff. And uh, so they're forced to deal with that. Um, and that's, uh, that's difficult sometimes, but, but they get through it really well. Yeah. And this is Kimberly. And what I would add to is, you know, from the very beginning too, is your kid, they, they're very familiar with disability growing up in in your household they understand like what adapting is they understand that you know we may do something a little bit differently than um, other families but that's just part of the way that our family does it and so disability is just is a part of their lifestyle and I think you know if you if you kind of sit back and and look at it you know, I, I see my kid and he's, you know, around people with disabilities. He's been around people with disabilities all his life. And he doesn't look at, you know, disability as, as being a negative thing. I know I have grandchildren now and, uh, you know, they, they're used to Granny J moving fast. And now Granny J is a little slower with mobility and they'll look around the corner um, and they'll see me coming up the steps and Granny J, can we help you? You know, so they are very resilient. This is Dave. Uh, you know, 18 of the 30 stories were done with Zoom interviews. And uh, one of the questions Jason and I came up with was, what adaptations or assistive technology did you have to implement to become an effective parent? And invariably, the answer was some form of my children adapt. I think my children adapted to me more than I had to do to adapt to them. And I just think that, you know, they learn what becomes normal for them. It's, it's just... Uh, it, there's nothing to it. They're so sweet and, and just resilient. They bounce back and, and they see things and they sense more than we think they do. Anyone else? Okay. Are there are steps a parent should take to prepare a child for the questions, behaviors, attitudes they might encounter because their parent has a disability? Kimberly, could we start with you and then we'll ask everyone else to chime in? Yeah. And, you know, I thought about this question a good bit. I don't know if I did any really true steps. 
I think that this was just such a natural process of parenting is my child just learning about disability and adapting. Of course, he has, you know, gotten questions from schools or his peers asking, you know, what's wrong with your mother? And he'll respond is like, nothing is wrong with my mother. It is just who we are. And of course, he he knows I have a disability, but he doesn't think it's anything that is different from from other other mothers. So I don't think he's exactly comparing us, but he just knows that this is part of our life. So I don't think I did any steps. It's just my parenting abilities very early on. Carter, my little boy, is adopted and um we got him very early at, at six weeks. And so there's just some things that I prepared for myself just with getting ready um, to to parent him. And, you know, of course, I could never carry him and walk at the same time. So I used to push him around the str- in a stroller versus carrying and, you know, little things like that I did and, you know, made sure his bedroom was upstairs in our house and just made sure that if there was a fire, that there was going to be a very safe route to get him out of there. You plan ahead like that, but I don't think I really planned ahead of the ableism um, that he was going to experience later on. I think he just conquered that um, pretty well on his own. Mrs. Kara, I definitely did, I'd say, approach this <laughs> in a structured way, probably because it was something that I was very anxious about. Jason mentioned, you know, sometimes we get these things stuck in our head, like, can we throw a ball? Or for me, it was, how am I going to take my kids trick-or-treating? Um, <laughs> which is like one night a year, but I was like very anxious about that before having kids. And another thing I was really anxious about was how they were going to approach questions and attitudes from others like this. So I think for that reason, maybe I did approach it with like steps. And so we read a lot of books and I actually practiced with them scripts that, and not that they'd say like word for word, like a robot, but I wanted them to feel like that they had confidence in what to say when somebody invariably said, you know, what's wrong with your mom or dad? Cause we, we are both parents in wheelchairs. And I also recognized, as Jason said, there is the really abrupt switch when that question maybe comes from like a stranger or a random kid on the playground versus like your friend you're hanging out with when you're 10 or 11 or 12. Like that's a big difference socially. So for us, we we practiced it. We talked about it. We still do. Um, and we talk a lot about tone, about how, you know, it's very different when a kid or, or sometimes an adult at the grocery store or something says, oh, you know, what got, what put you in that wheelchair or something? that's very different than sometimes people will say it with a tone like what's what's wrong with you so it's probably my anxiety around this but we we do a lot of like practicing and talking around that yeah and I think it's something that you know just to add a little bit I I think it's something that kind of continually happens over and over Um, and especially you know when somebody asks them in kindergarten it's different when than when somebody asks them when they're a freshman in high school you you have a different conversation there's a lot more depth of the conversation, response and question, um, you know, the person that's, that's making the question too. So, um, you know, it still comes up some, from time to time. I remember the first time it came up um, for both of my kids and they both came home and told me that, uh, that, that they, uh, that they got that question and we had to have that conversation. And what's oddly enough, and um, I don't know about the other people on the panel, because I know Kara's 
husband has a disability, but they also get the hero worship of my wife. Um, that happens a lot where somebody says, you know, your mom's amazing for, you know, taking care of your dad and all that kind of stuff. And I agree. She's amazing uh, for a lot of reasons. But it's funny because that's something that we don't think about, too, is that the other side of that is that they have to hear sometimes about how wonderful their mom is, which is not a bad thing to hear. But sometimes for the reasons that are assumed, um, I just like to think she loves me. So uh, and she's not, you know, just here to take care of me. So. Jason, this is Kimberly. You're very right. Um, my husband uh, does not have a disability. And I remember when uh, my little one was very, very young, people would look at him as like he is the caregiver for me and my child. And I'm like, do you see how tired I am? Like, I stood up with him last night. And, you know, so I don't think that they understand like how you can not, al- not alone take care of yourself, but also take care of a human, a child. And so it's, it's quite funny that, the, oh, your husband's so amazing type of stories. I'm like, yeah, he's amazing because he married me. <laughs> Thank you, Dave, Kimberly, Kyra, and Jason. ADA Live listening audience, if you have questions about this topic or any other ADA topic, you can submit your questions online at or call the Southeast ADA Center at 1-404-541-9001. And now let's have a word from this episode's sponsor and we will return. A celebration of family, Stories of Parents with Disabilities contains the stories of 30 families. In every family, one or both parents have disabilities. The stories illustrate the infinite variety of the American family. In the course of discussing their family experiences, the parents cover a number of topics. Many parents talk about adaptations and accommodations they made to be effective parents, but even more talk about how wonderfully adaptive their children were to their disabilities. The stories contain humor, compassion, and gratitude. They are proof that one thing you can get any parent to talk about is their children. Order your copy now. Welcome back. We are talking with Dave Mathis, Kyra Ayers, Jason Jones, and Kimberly Tussaud about parenting with a disability and their book, A Celebration of Family, Stories of Parents with Disabilities. Some of the parents in the book adopted children. What impact would you say the age of the child or the age and disability of the adoptive parent might have had on adoption approval? For those who are adoptive parents, could you share your thoughts on this? Yeah, I I think Kimberly and I are. um, So the age, so my child was adopted at seven um, and he was adopted out of age order, which is somewhat um, unique in the adoption world, meaning that he became our oldest child instead of our youngest child. So my daughter was four at the time. I think that at some point when you read, I think we like reached and surpassed the threshold of like unique or diverse. So with that, it became like not all that, um, not all that a big deal that he was oldest instead of the youngest. So my son is also a little person, but has a different type of disability, um, different type of dwarfism. He has achondroplasia. So meeting him, he, he wasn't aware of what his disability was. He had never been 
told or taught that. He'd actually been told to say that he was younger than he was. So as not to kind of stand out as um, someone so small for his size or for his age. So for us, even though we met him at seven, it was really just the start of him learning that he was a person with a disability. And also having two parents with a disability, um, he had likely in China never seen adults with disabilities, adults in wheelchairs, you know, that were out and about and doing anything um, in society. So all of that was just really, you know, new for my son, which is when, when I say like, I don't know that one piece of it really stands out because there was just so much newness, but we've worked really hard on building his pride around disability. I do think it's very different. You know, I see a difference between my daughters and, and him, but also my daughters don't have disabilities, but, you know, they had that early exposure you know, books and stories and messages from us from even before they could talk, whereas Eli really had not had any positive experiences related to disability before we met him. We've definitely tried to um, get those since then, and we're really fortunate. He's been home longer than he was there, so now he's 15. He's been with us for eight years now, and it's, a you know, it'll always be a journey like all of it, so. I think we had another adoptive parent. Yeah. Yeah, and this is Kimberly. Um, I adopted my little guy when he was uh, six weeks, and so he was in the child welfare system. And uh, he has a different type of disability as well. He's on the fetal alcohol spectrum, which means that he was exposed to drugs and alcohol um, before he was born. And so he, from a result, he has some. Uh, he has intellectual disabilities, and. So he, you know, he is definitely uh, has a sense of disability pride. I think it has helped. I know most recently um, with me being his mom, I know that we have uh, talked about ableism quite a bit because he's starting to experience that more in the school systems. And so it has been nice to be able to have those conversations where I have been able to truly understand the type of pain that ableism can cause and so that has been um, that has been helpful. But I will tell you, just getting to the adoption process, I don't think that truly age was part of our story as much. I think it was more around uh, the bias that the state child welfare system had of, towards people with disabilities. My husband and I went to go adopt, and I was told right directly in my eyes that I was unable to adopt uh, because of my disability, not anything else. It was only because I had a disability. And so obviously that is a, um, that is discrimination on the basis of disability and and not only, you know, a a violation of the ADA, but also a rehab act because it is a state agency that is uh, operated with federal funding as well. But so it was more, you know, it was more that bias, uh, that those attitudes, it was not anything necessarily in their policies, but there was a glitch and an issue within state law that we did have to go back and, and change it later. It's very interesting how the state laws vary from state to state on many of these things. Oh, yeah, it is all over the place, certainly. And And I think, you know, it really goes to show to how much the ADA and Rehab Act um, is often disregarded in states. Um, A lot of state laws just do not mesh very well with these huge pieces of federal legislation. Yeah, Joan, it also varies how they're enforced. I mean, some states don't even enforce their own laws the way that they should be, or they enforce laws that aren't really laws when it comes to Absolutely. 
Okay, this question is related to our previous question. What have states done to protect the rights of people with disabilities who are or want to become parents? Kimberly, you worked at the state level on these issues. Can you speak to this? Yeah, yeah. So South Carolina um, in 2017, we passed a bill called the Persons with Disabilities Right to Parent Act. Um, And that bill really came out of a lot of injustice that we saw, um, not only obviously with my story of being denied adoption in the very beginning, but we kept seeing the story over and over and over about parents having their children removed because of intellectual disabilities, because of being a, a wheelchair user. I mean, just really ridiculous reasons where our child welfare system were not wasn't even giving parents an opportunity to parent when they're very capable. So we decided to stop it. We wanted to make sure that we did everything in our power within South Carolina to not only protect the rights, but to stop all this discrimination from from truly occurring. So in South Carolina, there was state law that said that any type of disability could mean removal, meaning that the Department of Social Services could come in and and remove your child on the basis of disability, which is very old school and obviously not not appropriate. And so we um, we wrote a bill. Um, of course, we we had a first attempt and it did not do well because the bill we added a lot about uh, reproductive assistance as well. And so, in a mostly conservative state, we had to really work on the language um, to beef it up to really meet the requirements of the ADA and the Rehab Act, but also to make sure that, you know, our child welfare system is educated, our court systems are educated. And so we wrote um, in 2016 and, and passed in 2017, a pretty progressive disability rights law here in South Carolina. And again, it's called the Persons with Disabilities Right to Parent Act. And it requires that no parent on the basis of disability will have their child removed. But it also puts on additional requirements for our state department, um, child welfare system, uh, our court system, uh, law enforcement to ensure that they are accommodating parents with disabilities, that they're making sure that they have the correct supports in place to be able to parent and that no child is removed or no, no child won't be adopted on the basis of disability of, of the parent or prospective parent. So this, this law, you know, not only protects parents who are, are giving birth to children, but also protecting uh, people who are wanting to foster and adopt. Um, so those prospective parents as well. Once you pass legislation, you pass legislation. And so there's still a lot of work to do um, around that topic in our state. We, we are very fortunate of um, our organization, which is a Center for Independent Living, we have been able to um, provide modules and, and provide the training to child welfare systems, which is the best coming from a disability-led organization to making sure that the child welfare system is understanding um, parenting rights from the disability perspective as well and how to adapt to different parenting styles. And so it has been going really good. We've got Um, several uh, case laws now that this law really did come in and and protect protect the parents rights Um, so we're we're always still working on it and you know also helping other states but our uh, state became the 14th state uh, to pass 
legislation. Um, and I think it's one of the most progressive pieces of legislation throughout the country as well. She's understanding that, by the way. The work they did in South Carolina is kind of the, uh, the gold standard that all the rest of us are trying to get to at this point. Yeah, for sure. This is Kara. In Ohio, you know, we we do have a bill um, that just merely prohibits discrimination on the basis of disability. And we have been working for years to get that through. Um, you know, as recently as this week, it was to go to what we were hoping would be its final committee hearing. Um, and this whole discussion emerged about, well, what will this cost the state? Um, and then the discussion kind of went towards, well, students with disabilities in schools cost a lot of money, and maybe this will cost a lot of money too. And so the discussion stopped. We had to re-educate the policymakers that, no, we're actually not asking for what I would hope we ask for down the road, which is actual supports of parents with disabilities, like Kimberly's discussing in, in South Carolina. We're starting from like the bottom basement of just don't discriminate. That's all we're asking. It doesn't cost any money not to discriminate. So this week we've been educating our uh, representatives again, and we hope we have just till the end of the year until Ohio, it will sunset and we'll for the fourth year in a row have to start over, but we're, we're continuing to fight because it's important. Um, but it's, it's frustrating, but I'm really grateful that we have Kimberly and her work that she's done in South Carolina to look towards as that like beacon of hope. <laughs> we hope to get there someday. And and this is Dave. And I, I don't know how Kimberly accomplished what she did. It's pretty amazing. We've started an effort to do something legislatively in Kentucky. We haven't made as much progress as uh, Kara has, but uh I do want to thank Kara and Kimberly both for uh, being generous with their time and our with our Coalition for the Rights of Parents with Disabilities and for their advice. It sounds like South Carolina is really the flagship. That's great. That's a great thing because we're not always we're not always the lead on things. <laughs> if there is a person with a disability listening who is considering becoming a parent, what advice would you offer? Are there support organizations and resources you would suggest? Let's go around the robin. Jason, what would you suggest? You should probably read this book. <laughs> uh, and all, no, all seriousness, I mean, I think Dave will probably talk about this a little bit, but you know, he said one of the thing, one of the three things we want to accomplish was one is kind of to be a resource um, with, with the book in the first place. But the biggest thing to me is, um, and I've answered this question the same way every time, find somebody that's done it. You know, I mean, there's there's no better way than to to um, sort of immerse yourself in the idea than to get behind somebody that's already done it. Mentoring is such a huge deal. Um, find a parent. I'm always willing. You know, if somebody asks me, it's, it kind of goes back to what Dave said. We all want to talk about our kids. You know, as you ask me questions about what it's like to be a parent, period, with or without a disability, you're going to get an answer. Um, all parents are most parents are going to be that way. Um, but the best thing for me was, you know, I had another friend who was quadriplegic. Um, he he had a child that's about um, seven, eight years older than my children. And I just watched him go through the process. And then when it came my turn, you know, I kind of turned to him and it made a huge difference. Find out somebody that's done it and don't listen to the noise. There's so much noise out there. I mean, when you, when I hear that, you know, Doctors say you shouldn't reproduce. Shut up, right? I mean, get out of the way. 
know, um, I think we put way too much stock in what doctors say. We, we forget at the end of the day, doctors work for us. We don't work for them. They're not our supervisors. Give me some medical advice if I need it. But as far as staying out of my decisions that are going to affect me profoundly for the rest of my life, because I will tell you, there's nothing better in the world than when those kids get off the bus or when I get home after work or we're going to a game, whatever it is, seeing the world through the eyes of your kids, you can't beat it. So don't listen to the noise. You know, do the pros and cons if you need to. Find a good person to mentor you and just pay attention to what the rest of the world is, is doing as far as disability. Protect your kids like any other parent would, but don't not do it because some idiot tells you not to. I love how frank Southerners can be, uh, Jason. I love that I would say <laughs> to tell doctors to shut up as well. But in all reality, to know your rights, um, you are so protected under the federal rights to be able to have children. And I know this is going to sound really cheesy, but don't give up. You have to keep pushing because, you know, like anybody with a disability in society, you're going to have those naysayers. You're going to have people that say you can't do something because of your disability and you have to just push, push, push. Don't let anyone tell you no to having a family. And especially if that is one of your ultimate goals, that was my ultimate goal. I wanted to, you know, be a mom since as long as I remembered, um, I wanted to be a mom. And so don't let anybody ever get in that way. Even if it's, if you need reproductive assistance for, you know, fertility, you know, go through it, get, go do it. You can't, you know, if that doesn't work, you know, adoption, foster care. There's so many different options where you can be a parent, but you have the right to be a parent. And even if your state has state law, federal laws are still there to protect your rights. And so use them as you need. Dave, do you have any comments? Well, I just uh, would add that uh, uh, in terms of resources for people considering being a parent, there, there were three great ones on this call. And uh, uh, there are good people to contact. Kimberly also, if anybody wants to know about legislation, Kimberly's the person. Kara uh, is really involved on in some projects. One of them is a disabled parenting project. They have a Facebook page. You can search that and find that. And I would mention again, the Association for Successful Parenting, was, which is more focused on parents with intellectual disabilities is a good resource and they uh, do a lot of training. Kimberly can correct me on the name of this, but there's a National Research Center for the Parents with Disabilities at Brandeis University and you can probably search them on the web. Okay, I want to thank Jason, Kara, Kimberly and Dave. Thank you so much for being on the show. The book is wonderfully done. And the information you have shared today is so important. I loved it. I devoured it all weekend. It was wonderful. And I'm going to read it again because you know how you read again and again, you, see, you pick up different things. I absolutely loved it. Listeners, you can access all ADA live episodes with archived audio, accessible transcripts, and resources on our website at adalive.org. Listen to the SoundCloud ADA Live channel at soundcloud.com.adalive. Download ADA Live to your mobile device and your podcast app 
by searching for ADA Live. If you have questions about the American with Disabilities Act, use the online form anytime at adalive.org or contact your regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232. All calls are free and confidential. ADA Live is a program of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Black Institute at Syracuse University, and a collaboration with the Disability Inclusive Employment Policy Rehabilitation Research and Training Center. Our producer is Celestia Orasta with Beth Miller, Harrison, Mary Mortar, Marsha Swanke, Chase Coleman, Barry Whaley, and me, Janice Balding Gutter. Our music is from Four Wheel City, the Movement for Improvement. We also invite you to tune in to our companion podcast, Disability Rights Today, for in-depth discussions on important court cases that shape disability rights and the Americans with Disabilities Act. Learn more and listen at disabilityrightstoday.org. And we'll see you the next episode. Thank you for joining us. Watching. They don't want us to be a part of their city, man. They pull all these steps, man. All these curves.